for a sec. Okay. Hello, Brain Allies. You are listening to Brains Out Loud, where we talk about important topics surrounding mental health, from our personal life to our work life and everywhere in between. Our goal is that through these conversations, we can help others prioritize mental health on an equivalent level to physical health. This is your co-host, Juliette, speaking. And today we are here with Gabriel Comrie, who is a lovely friend of mine, a brilliant man, and an incredibly talented individual. Gabriel is a business owner and a creative who is passionate about film, digital media, and creating what he refers to as video magic. But with that being said, today we are here to talk about a pretty heavy topic that needs to be addressed and understood in this nation. And that topic is racism, its systematic strategy, and its traumatic impact. Gabriel has helped me understand what I can do better to be an ally at this time in our nation, where white supremacy is flooding our institutions, our streets, our capital, and our White House. His knowledge is a gift that I encourage our listeners to receive humbly, and his experiences speak volumes to the privilege that exists amongst white America. Gabriel, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. We are honored to have you here and really excited to have this conversation so that we can get this message out. Awesome. So recently we had a conversation about the criminal justice system in this country. Mm-hmm. And through some further research, I came across some shocking statistics. So to share a few, in Washington, D.C., three out of four black men will serve time in prison In major cities in the US, 80% of young black men have criminal records and more African-American adults are in prison today than were enslaved in 1850. Gabriel, can you speak a little bit to these stats and share with our audience how the white American economy benefits off of keeping black individuals in prison and how the system keeps individuals in prison or coming back once they've already been incarcerated. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I think one of the um, reasons why, or one of the largest reasons why, um, is because they wanted to, in a way, continue slavery. Um, and the way they did that was through <clears throat> was through the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, and if I could go back, it starts off when they started to figure out the tendencies and likes of black people based around marijuana uh, back in the early 40s and 50s when cannabis was actually still legal. In fact, you could go to the store and buy like cannabis milk, you know what I mean? And like, it was like, you know, you you could go and buy heroin. It was called laudium at the time. Um, You know, you could literally go and buy this from the drugstore, cocaine, all of them. You could literally just go buy it from the drugstore um, because they were all legal. When at the time, uh, jazz music first started becoming big. It was seen as rap music is seen now. So um, it was seen as like the music of the devil um, and therefore the music of black people. Okay. So when the uh, desegregation kind of happened of schools and everything along those lines and jazz music started really getting big, and there were a lot of uh, black jazz artists and jazz, jazz clubs um, that were in predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, you had a lot of uh, white women looking to get away from their abusive, boring husbands and essentially going to party um, with the black folk in the hood. So um, essentially, you know, when they realized this or like when white men realized that Um, their women were going and smoking marijuana with these jazz artists because marijuana was directly tied with black people and jazz artists. They figured out a way to um, imprison black people by making marijuana illegal. Um, So it really actually stems around a lot around that, that people actually don't realize. The reason for them wanting to demonize marijuana with black people is because it was an easy way to get them in the system. Um, So if I could jump forward to like now, basically, prisons are a business. Um, When you go into prison, 
the first thing that they do is they make you strip naked and they take pictures of your body. Um, when they take those pictures, they then put them in a database and those pictures tell them if any of those tattoos can or are in any way affiliated with gang tattoos. Um, and then they'll ask you also, are you a part of a gang? After they take those photos, they'll then place you in certain pods based off of how dangerous they feel you are. So if a certain amount of black people have gang tattoos in the prisons, uh, then they have to hire more police officers or control force officers that are catered towards um, these quote unquote violent individuals. Now, I just have to jump back again for a minute to 1998 when it was uh, admitted by the CIA that in the 50s and 60s, they distributed crack cocaine into inner city areas um, for the very reason just to be able to police those areas more. The way they did this is they utilized the Italian mafia and other drug cartels, along with drug dealers, um, young black men, that they, you know, essentially gave them the drugs and then let them just make the money and then, you know, followed the drugs from there. The reason why they did that is because it allowed them to be able to create a bigger divide between the rich and the poor. So if certain areas need to be policed more, then those areas are considered poverty areas or uh, high risk areas. Therefore, they have to have more police in those areas, but that's a problem they, they, that they created essentially so that they could police them more. Okay. Um, and that's where it stems back to them wanting to put black people in jail because again, the 13th amendment, legal slavery. So if we're looking at areas like, um, in the south of this country. They keep marijuana illegal uh, because it allows young black men to easily be funneled into the prison system. Um, so once the black man is in the prison system, more than likely he has to join a gang. You have to join a gang to be considered like, you know, safe for lack of better words. Once you join a gang, then they can charge you for other things in jail, like inciting a riot or starting a fight, which will get you 10 to 15 years on a minimum. And then on top of that, if you accidentally kill somebody or if somebody does die and you were part of citing that riot, you'll get a murder charge on your rap. And that'll be a lifetime sentence right there. And that's how they keep black people in prison um, by essentially trapping them with small charges. Um, so the, in the Southern states of this country, they actually seek to keep marijuana illegal because it fuels their um, the economy. And this is all based around money. The prison systems actually create the most amount of jobs for those counties in those areas. So because they bring in the most money, they, they uh, relieve the most taxes, um, and they employ the most people, they have the most voting power. So they're going to then be able to elect officials that are going to keep things the way they are, keep them, keep marijuana illegal so that they can keep money in their pockets. Um, and again, this is all surrounded, everything about this is surrounded by money because we as a people are their greatest asset, but free labor, is something that, or cheap labor is something that we can't really always rely on in this country. So they can make that happen um, with the prison system and essentially perpetuating slavery. Um, so now, cool. yeah, because I mean, like if you look at like China and other countries like that, I mean, like they have sweatshops and they like, they operate openly and they have a lot of others, but you know, that's like really illegal over here, you know? Yeah. So, you know, the, the way around that is the prison system. And we pretend that we hold ourselves to such a high standard and we act like we have these laws that prevent sweatshops and prevent illegal labor protocols. Um, but then not only do we actually create those within our prison system, 
uh, which you know one might debate is worse, but we also then utilize those sweatshops um, and labor forces outside of the country as well. So you know it's just typical America being extremely hypocritical and putting their own workers as well as the rest of the world in harm's way. Exactly. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So I was reading a book um, that I would highly recommend to our listeners. It is called Breaking Woman, Gender, Race, and the New Politics of Imprisonment. And in this book, it talks about the counseling system that exists within many female prisons, and I'm, I'm sure they exist within male prisons as well, but this book is specifically talking about female prisons. And the counseling system that exists is called PHW, and it stands for Project Habilitate Women. And the book discusses how they utilize a counseling system that is supposedly inspired by AA, where they encourage individuals to use a concept called confrontation of self. And this confrontation of self is a system that was created by AA. And this process includes asking individuals to face their alcoholic self or their addict self. And PWH asks women in prison to confront their diseased self. But in opposition to creating a path towards recovery and encouraging participants to socialize and support one another as they do in AA, they use extremely violent and aggressive language towards these women. So they call them horrible names and they remind them that they have no friends in treatment and essentially that they're completely alone. And they also encourage them to turn their anger inward. So when these women are feeling angry at the prison system or angry at the world, they tell them, feel angry at yourself. You're the one that got yourself here. They use terms like crack hoe, um, whore, say horrible things to these women. And they utilize strategies uh, such as telling these women that they are not real mothers, that their families will never forgive them and they're not fit to be parents. And this type of approach makes these women feel really isolated and it gives them less motivation to get out. So they feel that they have no support system within the prison, which makes them angry and frustrated. And then they feel that they have no family that will accept them when they return out of prison. So it's kind of similar to that whole process where the prison system is basically just building a community um, that creates a cycle. And these women feel like, well, why would I follow the rules? And why would I take these steps to getting out? Because I basically have no one that's gonna accept me when I get out. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that I'll, you know, that's one form of keeping these women in. And I, I'm wondering um, how in prison systems, you know, once someone gets actually released to prison, not only is it about their family and their community accepting them back in, but also their inability to get a job. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit and, and how difficult it might be for a Black person to come out of prison and then seek out an opportunity to restart their life. Absolutely. I mean, like I can tell you by direct examples, uh, a friend of mine who uh, was, um, you know, a long time, uh, like, you know, friend of mine from high school, who uh, actually like after high school got into some pretty big uh, drug sales. And um, he got popped with, he got caught with um, 250,000 ecstasy pills. Hundred uh, He actually got caught with 350,000. Um, 100,000 were illegal search and seizures, so he only got charged with 250,000, along with 500 AK-47 parts kits in the state of New Jersey, which are 100% legal, um, but parts kits, so they were not full receivers, so they were not working firearms, so they were firearm parts. Okay. Um, so then when everything actually went down, he was only charged with, um, at the end of the day, it came to like, three or four uh, different like federal gun charges which were actually like somewhat minor charges and then like uh, possession of cocaine and or other substances charge uh, which was very minimal um, so he only received two years from those charges that he got um, and then on top of that when he got out um, mind you yes he's white um, when he got out he 
uh, was very easily able to get a job as a manager um, through a like kind of like a, just a system of kind of like quote unquote good old boys like you know what I mean through construction you know because they were like oh you know he just got these minor charges and like you know and 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 you know let's just give him a chance and he got the, like he got all the way up to a manager position now here's one of those situations where like it benefited him to be white in that situation uh, because the judge. It was his very first actual charge, even though it was not his very first time being, you know, going, doing this. It was his first time getting caught. Um, so that came as like a first time charge. So then the judge kind of went lenient on him because of that. And, you know, they kind of played this card that like, oh, well, you know, his father's sick and he, you know, has been trying to take care of the father's properties and this, that, and the third, and it kind of like forced him into this role, right? Um, so they were lenient on him because of that. And I, you know, they, I guess they gave him like a pretty relaxed charge. Um, Which is crazy because there are people um, who are literally in jail serving life sentences for stealing candy bars exactly. and stealing hedge clippers exactly. uh, without access to parole. Exactly. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a man actually, there's a documentary called The Grass is Greener on Netflix that I suggest uh, everyone watches. It's amazing. And it talks about this, this direct representation of uh, the, like, you know, of tying marijuana to black people to put them in prison. And a man who has currently been in a life sentence, essentially in jail for a joint, because right? it started with a joint. He's, and actually they explain all of this in that documentary, which is great. They explain actually the cost breakdown and everything. They give you like a nice little infogram chart. Um, and Although, you know, when you do watch it, I suggest smoking a joint because it's going to make me that. <laughs> um, I had to pause it for a minute, like for a while. Like I had to pause it and walk away. It was like really that upsetting. It's almost as upsetting as uh, if you've ever seen uh, the Central Park documentary. Yeah. I had to stop that several times yeah. and come back to it because it's, so, it's just so incredibly painful to watch um and it wasn't even that long ago and things like that still happen all the time so it's just it's important for people to watch it though it's one of those things yeah. where it's like it's painful to get through yep and you want to turn it off and you want to live in ignorance is bliss but we especially as white people have a responsibility to watch these these things and to make ourselves aware of them exactly and i think i think also just to speech speak back to like women in general and, and black women in general um i think there's probably this you know um if you listen if you've ever heard anything of like you know that uh, uh lewis farrakhan has said speaking wise or even malcolm x um or dr martin luther king the black woman is the most disrespected woman the most unprotected woman uh, the most disenfranchised woman uh in the world period um, and, and I think that there's this problem, I think the most with white society where you have, um, white people usually thinking that like, you know, if they're called racist, that that somehow means that they're like a part of the KKK, neo-Nazi, you know, radical, like throwing the N-bomb, um, swastikas, you know, hate crimes, lynching type of a thing like individuals. And that's what unfortunately they assume is racism, but that is like overt, obvious racism. Um, there's still this entire like realm of covert racism that's actually worse that people don't necessarily recognize is racism. And like when it happens, they don't call it out for what it is. And then like, kind of like, you know, try to like stop other people from doing it because it's like, it's that almost silence compliance type of a thing that where people try to play it off like, well, oh, it's just a joke. I'm just kidding. Or like claiming like, you know, things like reverse racism. That's not a thing. It doesn't actually exist. Um, there's either racism can only be a product of the racial majority it can't be a product of the minority. So if it's from a minority to a majority side, that's called prejudice. Racism can only be from the racial majority, which is white. Um, it's, not called, it's not called black supremacy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's called white supremacy. Um, you know, the whole like uh, making America great again, 
uh, hiring discriminations, um, uh, uh, mass incarcerations, police brutality, uh, Confederate flags, um, school to prison pipeline, because that's actually a really big one. Like they, they, they practice this thing a lot that I noticed in inner city schools that they don't in, um, in non-inner city schools. I went to, just to let me just give you a little background on myself. I went to a, a high school that's predominantly white, Bridgewater Raritan High School. And then after I actually did a year at a, um, at a, at a private school um, in Hebron Academy, it was what it was called in Hebron, Maine. Um, so both very majoritively white, predominantly white. At the at the private school in Maine, I think there was like two of us. There's two black kids. There was myself, and there's this other black kid. He was kind of light skinned actually, so he was like half and half. And <laughs> um, so I was really the only like dark skinned black kid. And then in high school, my my graduating class, I think of 750 kids. I'm pretty sure there was about maybe seven to eight of us. Um, so you know, the, I think that there's just so many things when I grew up that I didn't recognize uh, were things that I kind of almost took advantage of not realizing that do happen in inner city schools, which is this kind of like compliance thing. And they say it now a lot with young kids, they talk about compliance and they use this word compliance a lot, like just comply. Like, what are you talking about? It's like human being. It's not what do you mean compliance? So, you know, there's that school to prison pipeline issue that that is a really big problem, especially in inner city schools and the way they teach and the vocabulary that they use, um, that they don't use in white schools. And, and I can, I'm a testament to that because I, I never heard vocabulary like that. Whereas like, you know, in inner city schools, when if I went to visit for a day, because I've done that before, you could do that back in, you know, early 2000s. Uh, that was a, a vocabulary word that they used a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, um, you know, there's obviously like a, a list that can go on and on and on about the covert and overt versus overt white so racism. Um, but I think the real kind of like issue or the, the, the hardest thing at hand for most people to recognize is when it's happening and how to deal with it when it's family members or when it's like people that you really normally wouldn't speak out against like your boss or something along those lines. And that's where I think it becomes harder because it's like, all right, well, I'm not really trying to get fired. You know, do I speak out against this right now to my boss that he's saying something that's obviously racist or do I not? I mean, a really great example for me was I, I used to work on wall street. Um, I had my series seven. I worked for a, uh, um, an, an investment firm called uh, Hallmark Investments in Midtown Manhattan. And when I went there uh, for the first day to actually interview, I talked to the, the manager, um, the, the, I'm sorry, the president of the company and then also the CEO. And one of the other guys just sitting there, he was just standing there, like they were both, all three of them actually, they were sitting across from me, staring at me like this, like they had never seen something before in their life with their jaws dropped, like their mouths were just open. And I'm like, what are you so surprised by? Like, have you never really seen a black person before? And then the one guy goes, no, we've never seen a black person who speaks so clearly and eloquently before. Where are you from? Like, you don't sound like a brother at all. And those are the kind of things where it's just like, that's so racist. You know, what does it mean to sound black? Um, but again, I, could, I can attest to it from the other side too, because growing up, I never really got any acceptance from black people because black people would say to me, well, what do you think you're white or something? Why do you sound white? Why do you speak white? I'm sorry, I thought I spoke English. I didn't think there was a speaking color. Yeah, I didn't think that was it. So you know what I mean? There's we keep ourselves divided in a lot of ways, unfortunately. Um, and I think the reason why is because it allows some sort of unity. And I get that because Ebonics itself is 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 just the language in its own, just like any other language that has um, its own nuances and it has its own laws and it has its own growth to it, just like every language. Every language grows and adapts and changes, there's words added to the English language all the time. Um, so, you know, it's not to say that like, that's somehow less intelligent or, uh, or something along those lines. I think it's just to understand that, you know, 
for lack of better words, it's just a, a, it's a different language in its own. Yes, I can speak it and I do understand it. Um, and unfortunately, because of uh, growing up so almost segregated as a black person, I learned to code switch. So when I talk to my family sometimes and people just call me out on it, and says, when I talk to my black friends, I just speak differently than I do when I speak to white people. And I just learned to do that because it's just what makes the other person comfortable. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. And how disappointing that we need to alter the way that we interact with others based off of the way that we think they'll best receive our true self. Right. And that must be, you know, that must have a pretty heavy weight to play in um, your sense of worth and your sense of self. And I think, you know, you're talking about your experience of people being so surprised about the way that you talk and they we need to be more aware of microaggressions and how those show up in our workplace and in our communities and our society and you know someone was telling me that they were so frustrated because um they were just as educated and they had the same amount of experiences you know as their uh, white counterparts in their workplace I was actually talking to my friend who's, who's a teacher and she was saying that her white counterparts have either the same education or not even as strong of an education um, as she did. And when they would speak and they would share information and teach, everybody would just act like it was normal. They were white people teaching. And when she would say something, they'd be like, wow, you spoke so eloquently or wow, you're so, so well-spoken. And then she would take it offensively and then they would be like, oh, you're so sensitive, or how is that offensive? And it's because that's a microaggression. Why wouldn't she speak eloquently? Why wouldn't she be well-spoken? Um, so I'm sure these types of things show up all the time in, in various different places. Uh, so, you know, I think 72,675 charges of workplace discrimination were filed in the last year. 67% of Black adults cite discrimination as a significant source of stress in their life. Um, and 58% of all adults say race relations in the U.S. are generally bad. So this isn't something that's an infrequent circumstance. And I imagine it must be frustrating. Even I can see maybe how the way I might act surprised or shocked when I learn about these things, could be frustrating to the people that are telling me about them because I think at the end of the day, it's not that shocking um, and it's not that infrequent. So I imagine that must be hard. Right, yeah. Um, and it definitely is, I think. Uh, and, you know, I, I think probably, and just to, to touch a little bit more on that, the amount of times that I've even heard from other white women that they have to tame their hair because they have curly hair, because otherwise it's seen as wild. You know what I mean? Like their natural curly hair, even though the curls are very like perfect and like in line with one another, it's not frizzy, curly hair is seen as less tame, right? So it, it's seen as like, you know, less kept or some odd reason, for some odd reason, like, um, in the workplace, um, you know, I, I've the amount of times where I, I've I've even had people say something like about, you know, what I mean, like, oh, like, like, what are you doing with your hair? <laughs> you mean, like, what do you mean, what what are you doing with your hair? <laughs> you know what I mean? It just grows on my head. <laughs> what? <laughs> and you know, and it's like it's funny because like my mom and and my parents are even like my mother and my father. They're even like very like kind of. Uh, um, almost like starting to have to re like tame themselves i'm sorry reteach themselves um about you know what i mean like what is now still like acceptable and how they've even been raised like you know reverse or self not i guess reverse racism in a way because like you know what i mean being racist towards self but i mean self racism in the sense that like i when i was younger i had locks um like you know I call them locks because uh, the like you know dread is actually a term that was adopted by Jamaicans, similar to the the N word being adopted by rap to try to take power away from the word. They always said that our hair was a dread to look at, 
So that's why they were considered dreadlocks. But they took the word dread because they made it a lifestyle. So when you're in Jamaica, if you're a dread, it is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. It is a, it's a certain personality. It's, it's how you move, how you think, how you are um, versus just having locks. Anyone in this country that has those perfect locks, they're called salon locks. They're not dreads. Um, dreads are natural. Anyway, um, so I had locks when I was a kid and my father always said like, you know, you need to cut your hair or you're never gonna get a job. And he wasn't wrong, <laughs> you know, because like that is seen as unkept. I had to shave all my hair off to be accepted in a workplace, um, you know, all through my twenties. Um, so. Wow. Yeah. And something I, I came across as well while doing some research is that 78% of black adults agree that being their race is difficult in today's society and in the workplace. And I also learned that black women are the fastest growing and largest population of business owners and entrepreneurs. And I know you're a business owner yourself, and I'm wondering how your experience as a business owner differs from your experience in a corporate space and what the pros are, and if you've experienced any difficulties being a Black-owned business owner. Uh, yeah, those are all great questions. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly because I consider my business still so young. I started it in 2017 and I really kind of only really started it in 2018. Um, so my business is still so young. I really can't say that I can, that I've experienced any difficulties necessarily from it. Um, although uh, because I do, um, I've done a lot of, you know, my research in terms of the proper way for um, a black person to have a business, I do think that I've uh, taken advantage of some of the grants and other things in place uh, for first time uh, black business owners. Um, now, that being said, um, how does it differ from corporate? I can tell you very much that because of the fact that I was in sales a lot of the time. Uh, so first it was my first sales job. I was actually manager of motorcycle sales and lease returns at Baker Chrysler Jeep Dodge in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, and after that, it was like, you know, the job on Wall Street um, that I was in sales for. Uh, and then my next sales job after that was I was a physician's consultant and on their client and payer relations, I worked for an EMR company uh, selling doctors are um, our, our basically our, our billing services um, remotely over the phone and, and handling a lot of other back end services for the doctors, basically putting money in their pocket from the payer side, from the insurance company side. Um, so I think the most interesting thing is when people realize that you are black, cause you can look at my name and you would maybe assume if you're smart French, Gabriel Comrie, because Comrie is a French or Scottish last name. It's both. Okay. Um, but you couldn't necessarily discern hearing my voice over the phone and seeing my name that I'm a black man. Now just to go back reason for that is because when i was born my mother wanted to name me i think jamel or like nafi or something like that uh she was debating between one of those two names and uh my father actually had to say because he's he's panamanian so he's straight off the boat from panama his name's irving comrie so um people always assumed him to be jewish mm -hmm. um but uh he actually said to my mother quote and he tells me that, he told me this, he was like, you know, I'm, we're not naming our son a nigger name, Barbara. He'll never get a job. And that was the way my parents had to think. So they named, so he came up with this algorithm based off of the uh, Fibonacci sequence and used those numbers that corresponded with uh, my mother's first, middle and last name and his first, middle and last name. And then our grandmother my, gra my grandmother's name and, and his grandmother's name and his mother's name sorry so my, my mother's mother's name and his mother's name and came up with the name Gabriel based off of that because um, oh. he's like a really big mathematician so 
so he came up with like three other names, but you know, he decided on Gabriel and like, you know, that was the name that, you know, everybody else was just like, all right, fine, Irving. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in the corporate world, um, you, you would read my name and hear my voice over the phone, assume that I'm white and I would get the interview. And the best part for me was always seeing their face and seeing how they really like took it. Cause a lot of the time, like I'd walk in and I'd say, hi, how are you? Um, I have an, uh, you know, I have a meeting today with so-and-so and they're like, oh, um, I'm sorry, who, who are you? Hi, I'm Gabriel. Oh, Mr. Co oh, hi. You know what I mean? Cause then it's just yeah. like, and you can tell right there that they're like, oh, you're black. Wow. Didn't even expect that. Caught us off guard. Yeah. You know, and you know, nine times out of 10 still like, because of that, you know, I, I can, I'm, I'm very good at um, wowing people uh, when I'm passionate about something because I can be very passionate about things. So I still would always get the job. I don't think there's ever an interview that I didn't ace. Um, but the only reason why I got the interview was because of those factors to begin with. A, I, would, I sound white. B, my name appears white, you know? If either of those factors weren't in place, I probably would not have gotten even half the interviews that I've, that I've received. Now, I can tell you that because of social media, it's definitely like harder because then they can just look you up and then see that you're, what your colored skin is, your color is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Color your skin is, sorry. Um, That's interesting. So do you think that LinkedIn and social media has made it even more difficult I do. I do. And absolutely. Yeah. And I actually don't like them for that reason. I don't like LinkedIn for that reason. Um, because it absolutely, I do believe it not necessarily always makes it harder, but it, it's, uh, you're judging someone based off of an appearance, based off of the posts that they make, based off of things that you might ne not necessarily agree with and aren't hiring them for the general merit of who they are as a person and their character. And if they're good at the job, or not you know what I mean because that's really what it comes down to um now uh, in some situations you kind of need to like I mean you don't want to you don't want to hire a uh um what was that woman's name that they had that that, that they made the law after Amy uh so-and-so in New York oh oh I don't know uh the governor the governor made it made a law after her for if you call the police on someone like and and they're like you know based on just because of the color of their skin um, you will get charged. I forget what her name is, Amy something or other. Okay. Um, but anyway, um, you know, like you don't want to hire that type of individual. You don't want to hire the type of individual that has just recently stormed the Capitol, obviously. So like, that's okay. kind of important, right? So like, you know what I mean? Whereas like, you know, yes, it, it can be like necessary, unfortunately, in this climate of the country that we're in right now. Um, but I think, you know, um, I don't necessarily know that it's harder or it's easier or it's made it worse or better, but I, I, what I can tell you is that um, I def it definitely was easier before 2020 to get work, whereas now it's definitely harder. Okay. Um, and I don't know if that necessarily has much to do with it or not, but I can tell you from, from me personally that I've noticed it's, it's, it's been harder to get work. Um, and uh, I actually had a position for a while um, with another company that I was working with. And the first time I met the CEO of the company, you could tell he was very shocked that I was black. Um, really? Yeah. And um, nonetheless, I mean, because of COVID, like they went like, you know, we went full remote. So like, you know, I'm, I'm still under 1099 with them and like, you know what I mean? But like, they definitely don't, uh, send me as many projects. And I noticed that right after I met him. And that was still in 2019 um, that I met him. And they kind of like slowed down on sending me stuff to work on, which I don't know is necessarily has anything to do with me being black or not, but I did notice that it was right after I had met him. Um, and because we spoke on the phone a lot in depth. And I think he was just really shocked that he could not tell that I was black over the phone. Um, so, you know, and I guess, you know, I, to go back to, you know, the prison record thing, if a black, if you're a black man, that you already have that against you, trying to get a job, just being the color of your skin, it's definitely against you. 
uh, Gallup, the polling organization, um, had college students fill out the exact same application for a job, one writing their actual name and one writing an ethnic name. And nine times out of 10, their white name got chosen versus the ethnic sounding name. I shouldn't say ethnic, because that's even racist to say, the more Afrocentric name. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, that's just proven alone that like, you know, it's harder for black people um, in, in that sense of it already. And then if you add on the fact that they also might have um, a charge, um, a minor marijuana charge in the state of New Jersey, uh, if you have possession over two ounces of marijuana, that is a felony. So you have a felony on your record. If you uh, run from the police because you're afraid of the police, that's a felony. Your second felony that you get, you go to jail. That's mandatory prison time. So that, you know, they, they, make this, they make it so terribly easy to put people, Black people specifically, in jail. Um, and then when they do come out of jail, force a system in which they cannot get a job um, because they have this, they are Black and they now have these, they're two-time felon. That's what it just shows on their record. It shows two felonies. It doesn't show what they're for. It doesn't show that they were at a party, possibly, you know, drinking underage, or I'm sorry, or even there were underage people there, or maybe they were like 20 and they should have been 21 and they just had a couple drinks, but they were drinking and they ran and got caught by some other cops. And now they're underage drinking. They were running from, that's fleeing from the police. That's a felony, yeah. you know? for eluding the police. That's what they call that, eluding the police, it's a felony. And then you can get a felony also if you had say um, exactly an ounce and a half of marijuana in your pocket in Ziploc bags because the Ziploc bag is over a half ounce. So they're gonna weigh it in the bag. They don't take it out of the bag for you. They weigh it in the bag. Then when you weigh it in the bag, guess what? It weighs over two ounces because of the plastic bag. So, and I'm then just, they can, so then that's a felony now, you know, even though they know that it's less than two ounces of marijuana, these are the kind of things that they do. And you know what I mean? And then now two time felon, three time felon, that's it. You're, you're prison, you know, you're doing at least 10 years for something like a, you might've just like, you know, maybe been trying to like, you know, just smoke some weed, you had some weed on you and you don't have your medical marijuana card B because you ran from a cop because you were afraid and C, let's just say, I don't know, you walked out of the store without paying for something, even though you like, you know what I mean? You, pay, you bought a whole bunch of other things just to say you might've just taken a, a black person takes a candy bar or something like that, or like doesn't have um, like, you know what I mean? Like the cash to get everything they wanted at that time and just kind of like accidentally stole it or did steal it on purpose, whatever it might be, stealing a candy bar, let's just say. That type of thing can right there, just those three things right there in the state of New Jersey will put you in prison for over 10 years. That's really hard to hear. It's, it's disappointing to hear. It's something that we all need to know and we need to recognize. And I'm just, my white privilege is just rolling through my head all the times that I was at a college party or a high school party where I was drinking underage or I was um, a sophomore in college and the party got busted and we all ran. That's what we did. That was our initial instinct. That's what kids do when they get caught drinking underage. Um, and I know I've talked to you before about experiences where I've been pulled over, where I, you know, was speeding, but I knew that I had a time where my license was expired and I didn't know that my license was expired. And they were like, you, we could give you a $600 ticket, but we're going to give you a warning. I know for a fact that a black person would not have gotten off like that. And it's just so important for us to think about these circumstances when we say white privilege doesn't exist. Um, you know, I have friends and family that say things like, well, I worked really hard for what I have and I worked really hard to get here and my parents were immigrants and we get that, but that's not the point. It's, it's the circumstances in which a white person, a black person could do the same exact thing and a white person would be fine and a black person would get their whole life and their identity taken away from them. Not to mention the fact that once you go to prison, you no longer have the right to vote. Exactly. So not or only you have the, or even when you have a felony, you no longer have the right to vote. So you're not really seen as a citizen, even if you come out and they give you these charges, you know, because a felon doesn't have the right to vote either. Um, if you have a felony, you can't vote. And know, that's part of you, the system. 
Yeah, and that's all part of the system. Exactly. So you can't get a job, you can't vote. Um, and if you do manage to find some way of making money and getting yourself a car and a driver's license, if for any way, shape, or form, if, if that exact situation that you just described happened to a black person, because it's happened to me before, they have in, the, in just about any state, they have the right to ask you to get out of the car and search your person. They can legally search your person. If they find anything on you or if they can't say plant something on you, then they can, then they have legal right to search the car. If they plant something in the car or they find something in the car and then you go to jail. Yeah. You know? So how does it make you feel? So let's talk, let's talk about mental health for a second and the mental health impacts that systematic racism have and police brutality have and just the culture that exists within America and the world. How does it make you feel when people say all lives matter um, or that white privilege doesn't exist? Um, it makes me think, no shit, Sherlock, all lives matter, but black lives don't. So we need to say black lives matter because black lives don't matter. Um, how that ties in with my mental health. I smoke a shit ton of weed. I have a medical marijuana license. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just, I smoke weed to try to like not think about it. Um, and then also like my coping mechanism is like kind of like a little bit like masochist, masochistic where like I work out too hard. Like I work out like extremely hard, I work out for like hours um, every day uh, to the point where I'm ridiculously sore or like um, I do extreme sports like um snowboarding i don't just snowboard like the average person i i ride hard i do really big things i do things that are very dangerous and kind of slightly you know neurotic um same thing with my downhill mountain biking or my motorcycle racing uh i just do those things because it, it's just that release that i kind of need and, and and that's what i do for mental health but i mean prior to that it was anger when i was growing up um and i've learned to channel my anger into those things and use it as like a focus um, uh, but my, also my biggest problem is that I have like this really weird eidetic memory to like negative things. Mostly I can remember, I can like, if I even slightly think about a situation that's happened, I can go right back into the feeling of it. It's like a, it's literally, that's what I actually have my medical marijuana license for is PTSD. Um, because even though I've never actually been in any war situations before, cause I've just never worked, I never was in the military. Um, there were things that had happened in growing up that literally I, if I talk about and kind of like go into, I can go into a, a feeling of like reliving that as if it was happening all over again. Um, and there were a lot of those instances in my life growing up, um, a lot. So, uh, because of that, I think my mental health has always had to have been through myself because anytime when I was even younger going to therapists or anything along those lines, they didn't really know what to say to me. Uh, that whole thing where they're not supposed to like the non-transference factor is always very hard for many of the people that I spoke with because they would kind of look at me like, what the fuck? You know, and like really not even know what to say to me. Um, so um, uh, I still do you know, talk to a therapist and like, you know what I mean? Just to like talk about things and, and the issues that do happen or that are currently happening. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things that we can use is talking about it and talking about it with friends and talking about those situations. I've, I've talked about those traumatic instances so many times now at this point um, that they're not as traumatic anymore when I can, when I can talk about them and not feel as outwardly traumatized all over again, talking about them. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I think every black person has kind of lived or grown up in some way, shape or form like that. And like now it's kind of at a place where like, when do we get a goddamn fucking break? Because like, um, every time we see someone of another black man killed, for doing nothing, walking towards the police with his hands up, do complying, you know, just comply. 
complying uh, and still being shot and murdered. It's just like, it's, it just, it really puts, uh, it really puts a, um, uh, and just, it really validates the understanding that you don't mean anything to them. So you need to do everything that you can to make sure that you can be above all of that in some way, shape or form. And that's like really hard. You know what I mean? Like, so like, I had to manipulate getting my medical marijuana license so that I could smoke weed and not get in trouble for it, essentially, if I smell like weed or not get like labeled for it. Like now, luckily, we're in a time where, okay, marijuana is about to be legalized, but I'm 35 years old. That didn't help me when I was 16, you know what I mean? And trying to self-medicate because of the stresses of life and everything, um, you know, I've lost family members to you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, police brutality as well. So like, you know what I mean? And then also just gang violence. Um, so like, there's, there's a lot of that type of stuff that just like, I think every, uh, every black person has to deal with or has dealt with in some way, shape or form. And I don't know. I, I think that for some odd reason, we must be very, very forgiving or we have to be because if, if white people could even for a minute acknowledge or understand all of those things that we constantly think about and have to go through and emotionally have to go through and live through, um, then they can understand how uh, to ally themselves in helping us to be able to go through, to, you know, so that they don't happen anymore. Um, and so that like, I can feel like I'm safe to have a child and raise a child in this world because I don't know if I am, you know? I have dogs right now and I'm, like I said, I'm 35 and I would love to have kids, but I don't trust this world right now enough to have kids. I don't trust this country to have a child, to raise a child in it, Yeah. you know? Because if, 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 I, if, if something like, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey happened to my, to happen to me, if I was Ahmaud Aubrey's father, you would hear about me. Because I would have gone on a killing rampage. There's no way I wouldn't have snapped. There's no way I wouldn't have snapped. I know, I, I just know that like, I could never handle something like that. So I'm not going to put myself in that situation right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's so many Black people I know for a fact, because I've talked to them, have said the exact same thing to me. You know? And my mother included, you know, she said to me, she was like, if that ever happened to you, I don't know, I would be beside myself. She's like, I don't know what I would do. She's like, I, someone would have to pay. And, and like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> you know? So. What parent doesn't uh, feel that way? About right. Losing their child. I think every parent feels that if someone took their child's life, then they would need to pay and they would be angry and they would be mad and they would be hurt for the rest of their life. And exactly. any parent can relate to that. So white parents need to pay attention to what's happening to black children. Exactly. 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 And I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think something you said, you talked about PTSD mm -hmm. and PTSD is not only something that people who were in combat experience, but 70% of people who experience a traumatic event suffer from PTSD. And the likelihood that we will experience a traumatic event in our lifetime is very high, which means that PTSD is very common. Mm -hmm. For people who are witnessing police brutality, who are witnessing people that look just like them getting murdered on the street, um, that is traumatic. That's traumatic every time you turn on the TV, every time you go on social media. And so to have those feelings and emotions, is it must be extremely painful and extremely difficult and i imagine that living in fear mm -hmm. that you can't do normal activities go on a run go on a bike ride go to the store or to drive your car just normal day-to-day -day activities without having the chance of a police officer or a rampant citizen white supremacist killing you must be a very difficult way to live your life right and that is like most black people who live in the south i mean like louisiana or you know arkansas or even parts of georgia 
um, you know what I mean? In like outside of the city of Atlanta, um, that, you know, that's just the life that they kind of like have to live. And that's, that's, that's like living in a war zone. That's like, that's like living in a, that right there is war, <laughs> you know, it is a war zone because for all, and in, even for a lot of these inner city, like for a lot of inner city young black men, if they, for example, um, during that time when the CIA was funneling crack into the black community, if they, if their parents, if they lost a parent to drugs because they were always in a crack house and the only way they could actually take care of their little brother or sister was to sell crack on the street from the dealer down the street, then they had to join that gang. And if there's a rival gang member outside of your street, then, you know, for all you know, like that person could just shoot you one day. So it could be, it could be another uh, black person, or I'm sorry, it could be another arrival uh, gang member, or it could be uh, a police officer, it could be a number of other things. And so they absolutely definitely live in what would be considered an absolute war zone, if you looked at it in any other way, shape or form. Um, <clears throat> now, I think there's an understanding also, or a misunderstanding also about like black on black crime. That would be like a whole nother kind of like large topic to get into, but just to speak on it briefly, um, black on black crime is no different than white on white crime, no different than Spanish on Spanish crime. It's just that like the, the, the demographic in the area, because it's, a, because black people are usually condensed into certain areas of the country, you're going to see more violence against each other always in those areas. So in white, predominantly white areas, there is white on white violence. You know what I mean? It's just that it's not categorized as that because they're predominantly white areas, A, and B, um, they don't really like want to like, they don't want to make label those areas that way, uh, especially in the media. Uh, so, and, and that has to do with money. I think the biggest prime example of that, is, and just like, again, this will be real quick, um, but like when I was young, when I was in high school, there was this thing called, uh, I think it was called, I think they called it like Operation rags to riches or something weird like that it was in the paper um it was this whole thing um and it was like they but they kept it really tightly under wraps and it was very interesting because they, they got a lot of like elected officials and stuff like that and then they got all the way down to these dealers um and some of them were actual teachers at the high school um but the thing is is like something like that where it was only in the local paper and where on the other side of it in an inner city school i remember like uh, my cousin went to union high school and this kid had brought a knife to school and i asked him i was like oh yeah like why do you have sent home for school today he's like he's like oh yeah my this, somebody brought a knife to school and it was like this whole thing and then like we watched the news later and the news had turned it into like you know a, a you know a, a attempted killing of a teacher and that he might have also had a gun and that he was a gang member and all this other stuff and, and the kid just had like a box cutter in his pocket it, it was something really stupid like you know what i mean and they, they tried to make it into like something like way more than it was um and it was constantly whipped out pocket knives from their backpack like on literally on a constant basis and we're yeah yeah in inner city schools they, they have metal detectors so like if you have a weapon or you somehow get past that with a weapon, like then it's just like, you know, like that's that's even that much worse. Uh, so it's like, you know, th there's just always that type of a thing still with the media and with a lot of things where they spin it to try to seem like, you know, things aren't as bad because of like the monetary gain in certain areas. And that's, and that's really what it comes down to is it's just about money and how they charge for property taxes. Yeah, I had a conversation with someone recently who was saying, well, actually, white people get killed by cops more than black people do. Mm -hmm. And then we talked a little bit further about the fact that, uh, well, there's also a larger population of white people in America than there are mm -hmm. black people. So proportionately, that would make sense. Right. And secondly, that isn't about senseless murder. A right. lot of people are killed by police officers because they get into fights with police officers police officers or because they are dangerous or because a police officer didn't handle the situation correctly. But regardless, that doesn't mean that police brutality 
doesn't disproportionately affect black people. Black people and yeah. even, to go even further, uh, surveys and studies suggest that white youth are more likely to engage in crime than people of color. So that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's people love to find useless statistics. Yes, for that sure. That mean nothing to defend their claim. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what they're kind of like numbers that are forced numbers again, because it's like the amount of times where, you know, the police are called to, uh, you know, and a police report is filed. So therefore like something is claimed because like some black kids get in a fight on the basketball court over a basketball game. And then one of them gets arrested versus like the amount of times that that probably happens in a white community are probably the same. It's just that in the white community, they kind of just take them home to their parents. Right. You know, and it's not reported. So then it's, it's, so then the numbers seem like crime is not as high. So they can argue that crime rates are lower in those areas when right. it's probably just the same. Yeah. yeah. So I've taken a lot of your time today and I really appreciate it. The last question that I have for you before we close out today is what can white people be doing right now during this point in time in history as white supremacy is rising and all of the issues that have been built into systematic racism and built in this country for years still persist, what can white people do to be better allies? One, I would say if you're not able to ask Google, don't ask a black person because like nine times out of 10 white people will say some pretty dumb things in like trying to make an argument about something. Uh, what I think I told you about it that the last shoot that I was on this woman said to me she was like well what all has Obama done for black people um hello a black man being president obviously like sh showed a picture that like we could be something other than like you know we could actually be elected officials hello you know what I mean that's like obvious but like okay if you're not willing to google that yourself because you could google it and google would come up with all of the answers for you and like you know what i mean like don't say things like that to a black person just to try to create an argument and then um the other thing i would think would be like to to educate themselves and on top of that just to add to that educating themselves uh the 13th amendment uh, 13th is a really great documentary if you like watching documentaries the grass is greener um is a really great documentary that also both on netflix um, and um, a really great book is The New Jim Crow. Uh, it, it does strictly focus on black men in, the, in America, um, and it doesn't really highlight black or Hispanic women um, or you know, impoverished women in America, so it does focus mainly on black men, but I think that's like really also just both great starts to understanding what it is that uh, black people consistently deal with on a regular basis um, and how we are disenfranchised in this country um and then the last part thing thing that i would actually say that could actually probably really help is to stop allowing people in your circle or um in your the workplace or stop like giving a pass to racism and even when they say it's just joking like it's not joking it's not a joke because like if it's not funny and nobody laughed or you know even if you did some people did laugh they shouldn't be because it's just not funny so um i think that there's this there's just that kind of thing where like, you know, you kind of, we need to stop giving everybody like this okay to, to be racist where it's like, oh, well, it's just my grandfather. He's old, you know, he'll never really get it. Or it's just like, oh, well, you know, they're stuck in their ways or like, you know, they'll, they'll try to justify that like it's based off of their situational trauma. And no, you can't take away somebody's trauma. Um, like, uh, I think an example is when I, I saw this, uh, Thing, and it was basically like this woman who <clears throat> she said she she hated black men because she was raped by two young black men um, and um, or assaulted I'm sorry not raped she was just assaulted by two young black men um, and and that was like her like reason for like why she kind of like hated black people and like kind of had this whole like anger towards you know black people and this and that and I said well you know the question is, is if it was two white kids would you hate yourself you know and it's like well no <laughs> you probably wouldn't so it's like don't like try to like assume that like um you can like 
categorize people based off of just, you know what I mean, like their color and uh, stop trying to let people justify their actions or their hatred or their anger for that, for their situational traumas. Um, and that's really just, that's really what I'm, you know, I think is the most short yeah. of it. It's a really, really great point. A really, really important point to make. Um, thank you so, so, so much, Gabriel. We are so lucky to have been able to have this conversation today. And I think that this will hopefully put racism and racial trauma and all these important topics that we talked about today into perspective for a lot of people and for those who are willing to listen and take action. So, so thankful for your time and appreciative of the opportunity to have this conversation with you and also appreciative of you taking the time on the phone calls that we've had and the texts that I've sent you, like asking questions and asking you to help educate me, even though it's part of my responsibility to do that on my own. And I've been trying to take action to do it. So I, I'm so appreciative of you. It's not your responsibility to teach us to take the time to have these conversations. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that's, and that's a part of it, you know, we're friends. So I, I do enjoy having the conversation. Having the conversation for me helps to be able to talk it out because talking it out is important. So that, those types of questions I think are, I personally always appreciate and warrant. Um, whereas like, you know, the other types of combative questions is what I'm mentioning, like, whereas like they don't need to happen. Um, but I do appreciate you always asking and reaching out, uh, mainly because uh, I think it helps me not just as much, but it also helps you to be able to uh, reach or um, speak to a demographic of people that I would not be able to because they wouldn't give me the time of day to listen to what I have to say based on the color of my skin. So um, you might be able to reach a group of white women who would kind of think twice about the fact that they're dating a literal Nazi, you know, um, and say, instead of saying things like, well, we don't discuss politics, you know, because I hear that a lot. <laughs> you know? I hear that a lot too. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, thank you so much, Gabriel. And we will be in touch hopefully soon and awesome. excited yeah. to be your friend and excited to work with you and just happy to have had this time today. Same here. Okay. Have a good one. Thanks. You too.